Hello, funky listeners, and welcome to the second episode of Funk Radio of 2021. I was wondering where you were going with that. The second episode ever of Funk Radio. Is this going to throw everybody off? Uh, no, it's the 301st episode yeah. of Funk Radio. This is your host, Kyle. And this is your host, Peter. And you are the listeners. I forgot where we came up with the subject, but this week or this episode, we are going to be talking about the top five most expensive sold records, I guess, for their value um, that have ever been sold. Uh, lots of, you know, rich people collect really rare records, really rare pressings, whatever, um, and they spend a lot of money on them, like baseball cards or Pokemon cards or other things like that, I guess. Well, and and you you will have some perspective in this conversation since you are a vinyl collector, not of that caliber, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah I do collect records. Um, obviously, not expensive records. I'm actually kind of cheap with my records. I don't, I don't even like paying more than like thirty five bucks. I think that's too pricey. That's fair, unless it's like some you know specialized pressing that you you can't really find in stores or whatever. Right. But yeah, lately with my record collecting, I've almost exclusively been collecting like colored vinyl because it's oh, fun. Cool. So yeah, I just got one recently. I think I sent you a picture of it, Peter. I got a colored vinyl of Coldplay's album uh, Parachutes and it's yellow. Oh yeah. So um, as we were starting to look into some of the most expensive uh, vinyl records of all time, um, we did find... A site, and I am. Uh, was it the Taco? Yeah. W- was that the one that we ended up kind of choosing as the basis for this? Yeah, we found we found a handful of sites that listed like you know here's the most expensive records, uh, but we, this particular one called the Taco.com. It, that's T A L K O, not Taco, like the food. Um, <laughs> seemed to be the most um, in depth uh, as far as. Most expensive records sold on different auction sites, whether that be eBay or what have you. So yeah, we just basically took the top five from that listing and kind of expanded on what they had to say about them. So it's not really plagiarism, right? Not if we give them credit. Touche. By the way, I typed in the taco.com, T-A-C-O, and mm-hmm. that domain is available, so. Uh, and why haven't you bought it yet? Well, I'm not that fast, but you listeners might beat me to it. <laughs> so you know, I already uh, bought, uh, what was that? HowStuffTwerks.com. <laughs> oh my god, I forgot about that. <laughs> that redirects to our website, and that's a joke that I don't think we ever actually did anything with, but it does work. All right, so without further ado, um, yes. let's so, get started. Yeah, we're talking about the top five uh, most expensive records here, and I guess starting with number five is the album God Save the Queen by the Sex Pistols, which sold for $15,800. I don't know why, but in the article, they have it in New Zealand dollars, which is listed at 23000 Was the buyer from New Zealand? I think that was the case. I think the buyer was from New Zealand, so they paid New Zealand prices, which... I mean, I guess... But the equivalent yeah, that, in U.S. was almost $16,000. Exactly. So, basically what this album is, it's a rare 7-inch vinyl record that is actually one of the most expensive items sold on the uh, vinyl site Discogs, 
which is um, sort of a vinyl seller site. Um, you can buy vinyl, CDs, whatever. Um, they're also kind so, of the, they're kind of like the Wikipedia for like any data you need on any music release of all time. Yeah, that's kind of true. Actually, they have a really, they have a really robust database as far yeah. as like albums attributed to different artists and what have you. Um, yeah. I remember when I first started collecting vinyl back in like pfft, 2014, something like that. I discovered Discogs and they had a lot of used albums for pretty cheap. So I kind of went crazy and would buy like lots of like cheap used records from like R&B artists that I liked and stuff. So I'd spend like 20 or $30, but I'd get like four or five records and they would just get shipped to me. But I've slowed down very much in recent years. I think in like the first year or two, I like probably must have bought like a hundred albums. Oh, wow. Um, but, one, but the more the more you have, the less you need to look for. So yeah, yeah, and I've actually uh, I've actually pared down my collection a little bit. I I sold like a probably about thirty or forty albums to a coworker for a little bit of money. Oh, um, but I don't play as much. He's he's he DJs, so he's into like you know having just mm-hmm. random albums to sample from. Nice. Uh, I forgot where I was going with this. Anyways, uh, so yes, it's the most expensive album to sell on the site Discogs. Now, the reason this album is so rare is because it's uh, the story behind the Sex Pistols. Obviously, they're they're a, a British punk band. Uh, I don't know if we talked about them on the show before. They signed with a record label uh, in 1977 called A&M Records. And I guess apparently after some of the band members had an intoxicated altercation inside the uh, record label's offices following the signing uh, of their contract... The contract was immediately shredded by the company, and so their contract with them only lasted for six days. Uh, That's a great story. Well, I guess in that time of uh, their contract, they had pressed 25,000 copies of this record that they planned to put out called God Save the Queen. But because the record was nullified, or the contract, sorry, was nullified, the record label pulled back most of those copies so it's it's believed that as of today, only nine copies of that record still are floating around in existence, and huh. so for that reason, it's one of the rarest uh, punk records of all time. So that, that has to be the most punk explanation as to why this record is rare. <laughs> pretty much, it's basically like, oh, the band pissed off the record label. The record label pulled pulled the all ba- the records, and the now band's there's only nine. Like trash the fucking record office after they signed the god that's hilarious yeah so so there's only nine of them that's interesting yeah so very very sex pistols of them let's play a little clip uh from god save the queen Wow, so it's a single song, and that sold for almost $16,000? Yeah, right? Wow. The, the funny thing is, like, a good handful of these actually aren't are, are singles. They're not full albums. Huh, okay. So. So this next one, uh, number four on this list, um, is more than twice that price. Uh, at $37,100. This is a release called Alcohol and Jake Blues by Tommy Johnson. 
now um kyle do you know on the top of your head of whether that's a song or an album um it's an it's a song on a double side or on a on a what do you call it on a single um okay. called alcohol and jake blues and then the b-side is called riding horse got it okay so it's a single then the copy of this uh that was sold was sold to a guy named john uh tefteller mm-hmm. who has the world's largest collection of rare blues records uh tefteller's purchase set a record as the highest price ever paid for a 78 rpm record via ebay now 78 isn't that like one of those weird older types yeah um i don't know i don't know if we've talked about that on this uh on this show uh old records from like pre i think 1950s used to play at a faster rpm called 78 rpm i believe this is back when record records were actually on on wax before they were on vinyl i don't remember anyways mm. yeah old records used to be played at 78 rpm i actually have a couple somewhere um i can't play them uh oh interesting but yeah um just to recap really quick because i'm dumb and didn't write this down for those oh. of you that don't know uh tommy johnson is a delta blues musician who recorded uh in the late 1920s and was known for his high falsetto voice and guitar playing. He is unrelated to Robert Johnson, the more famous blues player. Um, and before we were, are, were doing this episode, um, we were trying to determine whether Tommy Johnson was a euphemism for... I could have uh, swore it was a euphemism for dicks, but I, <laughs> I honestly don't know. I was going to use more flowery language there, but yeah. Sure. <laughs> um, tell us... About your Tommy Johnson on our Facebook page, listeners. Please don't. I, I mean, if they have a record by Tommy Johnson. Oh, <laughs> fair enough. Yeah, so 78 RPM, because that, I mean, that in a way dates that record in itself, just because it's an older mm-hmm. type. Because now singles after that would became 45, right? RPM. Yeah, yeah. And then what are full LPs? Uh, 33. 33 and a third, actually. That's right. That's right. That's right. Okay. So the, I guess as the auction was going, the price was hovering at around sixteen thousand dollars, give mm-hmm. or take. But then in the last minute, and in true eBay fashion, uh, the the price ballooned to thirty seven thousand um, dollars, and that's when Tefteller anteed up to uh, uh, one hundred dollars more than the auction uh, in order to win. So a lot of uh, a lot of hijinks going on there. I'm not sure who. I'm not sure who basically doubled the price during that auction, but they oh. must have really wanted it. It doesn't sound like he was the one who necessarily did it, though. No, I don't think he doubled the price. He just apparently wanted it worse than the other guy. So he ended up outbidding yeah. him by like a hundred bucks to win the auction. Um. <laughs> so I guess in the, I, I guess to preface this next part, uh, mm. in the article that I found this story on, the uh, person that interviewed Tef, Tef Teller, uh, basically asked him, like, you know, what, what would you pay to part with this this record that you had purchased? It's, to quote him, he says, it won't happen. I know this sounds crazy, but I had somebody from Fuse TV say to me, you just paid $37,000 for a Tommy Johnson record. What would it take if someone would want to buy it? And he said, it's not for sale. The guy said, well, what about $400,000? And he said, no. And the other guy said, why? And he said, well, it's very simple. I have the world's best blues collection that's a fact the minute i start removing anything from that collection i downgrade the entire collection 
And there's no point in doing that because the way I see it, it's much more valuable as a whole than any one part. I'm certainly not interested in selling the whole thing now, but at some point in the future, obviously, I have to. I can't keep all this stuff forever. So it will be for sale as one lot for an incredibly large amount of money. It's a it's an interesting take because he's right. I mean, a collection like that, you can sell it for way more than the sum of its parts. Mm. But you're all I guess in another way, you're also assuming that someone is going to buy all those records for that ex- extravagant price. Well, the, I imagine the, somebody would. I was going to say, the funny thing is, I guess uh, he re- recalled that the, the reporter from Fuse TV, and I don't know if the reporter was serious or just trying to make a point, mm-hmm. uh, the reporter said, quote, I'll give you $2.3 million for the whole thing. And he said that wouldn't buy it. I mean, if just one of them is costing this, I kind of believe that. Yeah. That's I mean, that th- th- you're right, though. That is an interesting perspective from a collector's standpoint is the totality of the collection increases the value of any individual item by the fact that you're the only one that has this large of a collection. So if he were Mm -hmm. to sell this to, say, a museum or something down the road, they might pay a lot more to because of the totality of the collection than any piece of it. Yeah, well, because you really, you're taking out the need to have to try to find those all individually from different people. Exactly. Um, And, you know, I I assume that he's keeping them all in good condition and all that. So, mm-hmm. interesting. interesting. I guess what he does too, which is kind of cool, because he has like a website. Um, I think it's called like Tef Teller's Records or something, where he actually creates digital recordings from some of these old records and sells them as like, uh, what do you call it, uh, mixtapes or whatever of like old blues oh. recordings, and he puts out different tapes every year. So. In some ways, it's like the only way for people to even get digital versions of some of these rare recordings. So if you're like a blues fan, that's kind of fun. Huh. That's an interesting distribution model. Um, well, should we should we listen to a clip of uh, this song, Alcohol and Jake Blues? Uh, yes. That was number four on our list. Uh, Number three, I have no idea why, but it's almost ten times as expensive. Wow. Uh, And it is the recording of My Happiness by Elvis Presley, which sold for $300,000. Oof. And it's actually an acetate recording um, of a ballad that he sang called My Happiness, which is the first song that he ever recorded. Oh, wow. Uh, So basically what an acetate disc is, it's a lacquered disc, which is a type of gramophone record that was basically used from the 30s all the way to the late 50s. They're basically, they're used for the production of vinyl records, but unlike ordinary vinyl, which are formed from uh, lumps of plastic and sort of a mass production process, an acetate disc is actually created by using what's called a recording lathe to cut the um, groove into the surface of a lacquer-coated blank disc. So instead of like... So is that not how vinyl records are made? I thought that's how... I thought they lathed them, but I guess are they like... um 
like injection molded or something sort of they're yeah they're pressed or like press it's almost molded. like a like how you press a coin or something they yeah they have the entirety of the recording of one side and they oh, press wow. it onto the vinyl and it basically sort of stamps it in i guess whereas this for this way kind of cuts the grooves as you're recording huh um, so is this ma- is this used to make like master copies or something maybe? Maybe uh, that might be a subject for a future funk episode. I'm not entirely sure actually. Oh yeah, one of one of the uses it says is disc mastering. Okay, so there you go. Yeah, interesting. So basically, Elvis. This was a one of those records of Elvis's first recorded song. Yeah, essentially. Huh. Elvis Presley recorded this song in 1953 at Sun Records, which uh, was a very famous uh, recording studio in Memphis. When Presley was only 18 years old, he went there and he paid $4 for the recording. <laughs> As the story goes, uh, his family didn't have a record player. So he uh, left the record studio and went to his friend Ed Leake's house to listen to it. But Presley accidentally left the record at his house. So his friend uh, Ed Leake kept the record in a safe for six decades uh, and then after he and his wife passed away, his niece, Larissa Hilburn, inherited it, uh, at which point she contacted Graceland, which is the sort of uh, estate-slash-museum uh, of Elvis Presley, uh, where she offered it up to, to auction. So basically, yeah, um, this record was sold uh, in an auction at Graceland, which is the you know kind of tourist attraction uh, home of Elvis Presley. Um I wish they called it Elvis Land. <laughs> well, uh, you know Dolly Parton has her own uh, her own theme oh, yeah. park called Dollywood. We should do an episode about musicians with that have theme parks. With theme <laughs> I think parks. she's the only one. <laughs> unless you count, um, unless you count Neverland Ranch by Michael Jackson. I'm going to write it down just in case. <laughs> This, like I said, like we said in the outside, this record sold for three hundred thousand dollars, but uh, essentially the um, the buyer actually paid two hundred forty thousand, but the price uh, includes a premium of twenty five percent or sixty thousand dollars that goes to the auction house. So when you spend that much money, <laughs> you're basically having to also have an automatic an automatic donation to the to Graceland. Which so, by itself was almost twice as much as yeah. what some of these other records were going for. Yeah. Uh, I mean, considering it's an Elvis record, I guess I'm not that surprised. Oh, yeah. And it's also oh. probably the most rare Elvis record of all time, I imagine. Oh, yeah. I mean, it, it's essentially the record that started his career. Um, it's an interesting story, though, about how it came to be. Because it wasn't like, oh, the like his first record label lost it or something it was like he literally went and recorded it and left it at his friend's house yeah so exactly weird. i think that that the story behind it and the kind of makes it almost all the more um valuable yeah uh i will say that one thing that i wasn't expecting coming into this topic was just the the stories behind why some of these records are so yeah i think uh, that's rare because you I, would think that it's mostly just because like oh they didn't sell that many yeah, I think or that's something. That's what makes these top five so interesting is they're all rare, but for very different reasons in some instances. Yeah. Um, huh. So yeah, this, uh, I thought the story behind this one was kind of fun, even though I'm not the biggest Elvis fan. It's still fun. 
Well, listeners, you can test whether you're an Elvis fan while you listen to a clip of My Happiness. Is it seems have gone by since we shared our dreams But I'll hold you I'll be no Alright, so probably equally famous, if not more so, to Elvis Presley is uh, the Beatles, who take the number two spot in this list um, with their White Album. Uh, now, if I remember, remember correctly, that's not the official name of it, right? It wasn't that kind of... I think it was just, it was just self-titled. I think they later called it. Yeah, it was just self-titled album of the Beatles, but because it came in like a like a pristine white uh, record sleeve, it just became kind of known as the White Album. Uh, you know, later on yeah. in their career. That sounds familiar. Anyway, so this one again, we're about or more than doubling the last one. So um, a copy of this went for seven hundred fifty thousand dollars. Jeez. So I guess on December fifth of twenty fourteen. Copy number 0000001 of the White Album sold for uh, actually $790,000, which uh, set a new real world record for a vinyl record, uh, I guess, sale at an auction. Early estimates for the item place its value between um, 40 to 60K, but obviously this went for more than 10 times that. Mm-hmm. So that's pretty insane. It is the Beatles, though, so again true you know uh so apparently so i as i said with the kind of the the number of that album so i guess i mean i, I assume that's like the um what do you i was call gonna it? say like the, 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 reasoning, like the serial number the reasoning for that is every white album actually i don't know why they did this but every white album actually has the number of the order of which it was produced like even the one that i have it's like number six hundred thousand five hundred whatever um uh, okay so they all are stamped with their order of production and i think they did that on purpose uh, because of the fact that they gifted the first four copies to the members of the beatles so they were numbered uh okay so is is it not practice standard practice then for album records to have I serial think, numbers i think they do i just don't think they prominently display them uh as got it as much as this particular album did i'm sure maybe like on the inner sleeve or something there might be some noting of like this album is blah 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 of you know a million but right huh this these uh, okay. these numbers are actually displayed on the outer sleeve jacket hmm. well as kyle mentioned uh the first four apparently of this record were given to the beatles themselves and seeing that this was number one obviously that means that it was owned by one of them originally which i'm sure i even if it wasn't owned by one of them i'm sure like the number one would still pull in a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Um, so this was the first numbered UK um, mono um, type of record. Uh, I guess this was kind of in, the, in that period where they were kind of like releasing mono and stereo as separate. Yeah, I was going to say the mono, ver- the mono version of the album came out before stereo version. So that one is much more sought after as well. Got it. Uh, each of them, each of the four Beatles received a pressing of the album in the late 60s. But it was more recently revealed that Ringo Starr actually got the number one disc, uh, which he stored in a London vault for 35 years. The top load sleeve is in near mint minus condition and would be near mint if not for the bumped upper right front gatefold corner. 
but it is overall very clean and fresh with very minor abrasions. To explain a little bit further, um, the condition of vinyl records, especially by collectors, are rated uh, similar to other collectible items. I think they rate coins the same way, where mm-hmm. mint is like, you know, untouched by anybody ever. It, you know, it looks exactly the same as, it, as the day it was pressed. Mm-hmm. Uh, near mint is obviously close to that. I, th- I think it goes mint, then near mint, then very good, then good, or something like that. Um, and there's plus and minuses of, of those different values, like mint, near mint plus means it's damn close to mint, but just not there. Near mint minus. And he, is, and he said this one was, or they said that this one was near mint minus. Yeah. So, I mean, mm. it, it, it shows the, what's the word? It shows the high standards of these grading systems where, despite the yeah. fact that it was stored in a vault for 35 years, just the natural act of aging basically caused this thing to not be as as mint as it could be. Well, imagine if you're a collector on this level and you're like, you know, browsing through rich people, eBay.com. Yeah. And I know, you see like, oh, near mint minus, fuck that. Yeah. And I know the White Album especially is probably tricky to grade because it's mm-hmm. white cardboard and that just naturally yellows over time. Yeah. Like the one that I have basically is just like shit yellow. It's like not even white anymore. Unless it was in like UV protected plastic or something. Something like that. Yeah. Like vacuum sealed. Well, that's pretty interesting. So I guess... Um uh, I'll I'll pick some song from that album and I'll play it. As a yeah, I was gonna say this this I think this is the first one that actually is a whole album and not a single. So the number one most expensive al- album uh, sold for $2 million, and it's the album Once Upon a Time in Shaolin by the Wu-Tang Clan. Now, I know we've talked about them on the show before, but for those of you that don't know, they're a popular American hip-hop group that was uh, prevalent in the 90s. Uh, they were based in the New York area. Their um, album called Once Upon a Time in Shaolin was actually... Um, created as sort of a, I don't know, an art piece uh, where there was literally only one CD of it. This is the only one, that, by the way, that's a CD and not vinyl. There was only one CD oh, yeah. ever created of it, and they auctioned it off um, to a very infamous man named Martin Skrilly, and he bought it for $2 million because he's got fuck you money. Yeah, this one this one's an interesting case because it was it wasn't, you know, it wasn't made to be rare by its age or, you know, the fact that there aren't many out there. It was created to be a one in the universe kind of thing. Mm-hmm. This album was interestingly interestingly recorded in secret by members of the Wu-Tang Clan for over 6 years. Uh, it was pressed in 2014 and then stored in a secured vault at the Royal Monsieur hotel in marrakesh morocco it was auctioned through an auction house called paddle 8 in 2015 and a legal agreement with the purchaser stipulated that the album couldn't be commercially exploited until 2103 basically 88 years 
from its uh, creation. I think that's like general copyright law, though. So long after we're dead. Yeah. And the winning bidder was uh, American CEO named Martin Scurley, who I think at that point he wasn't really well known, but he ended up becoming infamous because uh, as the CEO of a pharmaceutical company, he bought the patent rights to a drug uh, called Daraprim, which is an anti-parasitic. Uh, and in buying the rights to it, he increased the production or the sale price from $13 to $750 per pill. And because this uh, anti-parasitic drug was a life-saving drug for people that had parasitic infections, uh, a lot of people got really mad <laughs> because they're like, you're profiting off of people's lives, quite literally. Yeah. And on top of that, on top of just being a shit human being in that respect, he uh, ended up committing securities fraud and was, what's the word, convicted uh, of such... And, and he ended up being sentenced to seven years in federal prison. Well, that's better than nothing. The funny thing was, it says he paid $7.4 million in fines. So he paid three times as much in fines as uh, this album cost him. So that's fun. The funny thing is, uh, members of the Wu-Tang Clan basically ha- don't have good things to say about even the recording process of the album. <laughs> which is kind of funny. Yeah, I guess uh, one of the leaders of the Wu-Tang Clan, RZA, that's R-Z-A, uh, said, even though there was a lot of controversy around the recording of Once Upon a Time in Shaolin, he said he would still, he would do it again if he if he could, but... Like I, re-record it, you mean? Yeah, but huh. I guess because there's a, there's a lot of politics within... Uh, Wu-Tang Clan that we could honestly probably do an entire episode on about the different members and who stayed and who left and who has beefs with other people. Mm-hmm. So basically getting enough people back together in any form to record this album, because the band at that point basically wasn't defunct, um, was kind of a pain. Uh, I guess one of the other members of the band, uh, Method Man, basically when asked about it, he said, quote, when I was informed how they were approaching selling the album, I kind of flipped out because I was misinformed by the person who gave me the information. It's hard for me to speak on it because I wasn't in the loop. So it sounds like some of the members weren't even fully informed on the the, the whole idea of we're only going to release this one album of it or one copy of it, which if you mm-hmm. record something, you want to make money off of it. And Oh, uh, so, they'd, so they didn't record it with the intention of it? It sounds like being- some of them weren't really... Uh, weren't really privy of that, no. Which is kind of shitty. So maybe like a couple of them came up with the idea, but they didn't let everybody else know yeah. who was involved. Like they thought, oh, if we sold this one copy for two million, I, I'm curious if that would have sold, would have made them more profit than if they would have sold, you know, a million copies at ten dollars a pop. Yeah, because they wouldn't be going through a record label or something. It's kind of like you know, it's kind of one of those like you know, as an artist, what. Uh, what responsibility do you have to fans, you know, or is it just about your art and whether they like it or not is up to them. But even then, if you make art, but then it's only ever seen by one person, you know, very true. Uh, you know, what does that do for the artist? I guess. Very. Yeah. It's kind of, a, so, it's, it's kind of an interesting point. It's like you're purposely creating art that you don't want seen by people or listened to by people. So, I mean, I, I guess I knew kind of, the broad strokes of this story, I didn't realize that they were actually like 
felt mixed emotions about it. Yeah, I, I always kind of wondered, like, I knew this album existed, and I knew they did it, but I'm just like, why? <laughs> what was the point? Yeah, well, I, I had to just assume that they, they had purposely done it for just for it to be funny or something. I didn't realize it was kind of more complicated than that. Yeah, same. I don't know if we're going to be able to play a clip of anything from this. I don't know if... I, I don't think it's available anywhere, to my knowledge, anyway. I think that's the whole point, so... You don't get to listen to a clip, listeners. Unless you're young enough for it to be... So wait, what? what is the thing about 2100-something? The year? 2103 is is when the copyright on it uh, expires, and it could be like released to the public, which I think is just public domain for anything. I see. So that's when it can be released in the public domain, but that's assuming that he or the, I guess, the future yeah. heir of that album would have to purposely do that. So yeah, um, that is the top five most expensive albums ever sold. Um, I like that how number five was like, oh, it's it's fifteen thousand dollars, and then number one is two million dollars. Like, yeah, that's God. like an exponential increase in in money. The thing I find interesting about this is that uh, at least in the cases that we mentioned, the year that the auction took place, they were all within the last like ten years. Oh yeah. The, so basically or at least the last five years so the, i mean it's pretty recent i was gonna say the amount of absurd wealth that's been generated for the the top you know 0.01 percent over the last 10 years since the recession is insane so these people have that's a good point more money than god well it's uh certainly certainly a situation we'll yes. we'll, we'll we'll take that stance listeners i know that's pretty controversial yes um so, uh, if if you want to do something that's free, um, you can go to getyourfunk.com and listen to all of our other episodes. Or you can go to facebook.com slash getyourfunk and tell us about your Tommy Johnson. Please don't. Or you can listen to us on Spotify or on Google Podcasts or on iTunes and just have a, have a grand old day, listeners. Yes. Uh, so yeah, this has been your not-rich host, Kyle. And this has been your not-rich host, Peter. Thanks for listening, listeners. Um, and if you... I don't know what I'm saying. (laughs) Bye, we love you. Bye.